What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Devil is on his way, motherfucker, the devil gonna make you pay. Fall to your knees, devil is on his way. Fall to your knees, devil gonna make you pay. Fall to your knees, devil is on his way. Mountain Murders is an Appalachian true crime podcast. Some content may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. We say fuck a lot. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to Mountain Murders. I'm Heather. And I'm Dylan. And we're late again. I don't even want to talk about it. You don't want to talk about it? Nah. Yes, we are late. And uh, this is a regular episode of Mountain Murders. We're going to start calling the midweek sometime this week episode. And let's just keep moving. Okay. Well, you know, we've had a lot going on here. You're always getting tied up at work. I just worked 19 hours yesterday. It's true. And I started a brand new adventure, Dylan. She is gamefully employed, folks, and you will not believe in what industry. Well, I have two part-time jobs, basically, right? It's just enough hours to keep me busy without committing to a full-time job so that I still have time for the podcast. So not only am I substitute teaching, but I'm working in the death care industry. Death care. I don't know that I've ever heard that term until uh, recently, and I think it's a great way to put it. I'm working with morticians, yo. She is working. This is my dream job, Dylan. At a crematorium slash funeral home slash everything, because they do it all. This has been my dream for so long, and I cannot express how excited I am for work. Like, this is the first time in years that I've been like, I get to work tomorrow. She's so excited. I am. It's just a really fascinating field. There's so much to learn. It's so interesting. And I'm a nerd. You know I never stop learning, so. Well, I mean, hey, you, you've always said since we've been together that you'd love to work in this type of uh, industry. And uh, now here you are. And I uh, hope you the best. Uh, or sorry. I wish you the best. And um, I hope it's exciting and I'm sure you're going to come upon things that are like, ooh, takes a little getting used to. There have been a few things, yeah, that um, hmm, a bit jarring here and there. I mean, you, you go in with expectations, but you, you never quite know until you know. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. 
Anywho, maybe it will give me more perspective when we talk about some of our true crime cases. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure that can definitely give you some uh, an insight to uh, many different things. And uh, on top of that, it's just something that you want to do, which always helps with a job. And uh, before we get started, I would like to thank today's sponsors. Hit me with your sponsors, Dylan. Uh, yes. Yeah, so I would like to thank Jenny and David. Who thank you. So generously donated at patreon.com forward slash Mount Murders podcast. And they are accessing all the ad free and extra content. And Jenny joined our Discord fam. What's up, Jenny? Yes, I love it. Are you ready to get into today's episode? Dylan, I'm bringing you something a little different. We are still in the state of North Carolina this month, but instead of bringing you just a straight up true crime case, I have something that mixes in a little murder, a little mayhem. Wow. And some history, because again, I'm a nerd and I find this story to be one of those, like, how is this not taught in schools? Because it's just such a wild story. And to be honest, I've never heard it before. And I'm I'm a Carolina girl. No. Well, once again, you're going to wow us from the Mountain Murders vault. And I can't wait. This is stuff of like true Appalachian legend. You want to get into this? All right, let's dive in with two feet. William McKeeson Blaylock was born June 21st of 1837 in Grandfather Mountain, North Carolina. Are you familiar with Grandfather Mountain? It is quite a famous location. Ah, yes. I went when I was a young lad. When you were a young lad? Yes, I visited the uh, virtuous peaks of Grandfather Mountain. Well, it is now a state park, a nonprofit attraction. It is located near Linville, North Carolina, and it stands at 5,946 feet. It is the highest peak on the eastern escarpment of the Blue Ridge Mountains, which, of course, is one of the major chains here in the Appalachia region. It is located in Avery, Caldwell, and Watauga counties of North Carolina. This is what I would consider like northeast North Carolina. It is, what, about two and a half hours or so to Grandfather Mountain, um, to that area from like where we're located. Yes, and if you're at if you visit Grandfather Mountain, you can check out Linville Caverns and you can go deep into the belly of the earth and you can see blind albino fish in the depths of the murky water. Beautiful area. A lot of people refer to this as the Highlands, the Highlands area or the Highlands, um, you know, part of the mountains here in North Carolina. And it had a lot of uh, Scott. Scott settlements. Scottish settlements? Yeah. Okay. A lot of Scots uh, moved into that area. Of course, we've got a lot of the, what we call Scott, you know, Scott, Scotch Irish, Scott Irish here in this region. And many of those folks from Scotland settled um, in that Highlands area. Because from what I understand, the Boone, um, kind of Grandfather Mountain, Linville, that area is similar to the Scottish Highlands. Yes. Famously, the McLeod clan uh, lived there. And there certainly could only be one, The Highlander. The Highlander. Wow, it's great movies. Okay. So William's mother, Mary, soon became a single mom. Um, 
to the to her infant son because her husband went into the woods to hunt and never came home. Months later, his body would be recovered. No one really knows how he died. It was speculated that he was either killed by wild animals or perhaps bushwhackers. It wasn't entirely unlikely that he'd been murdered. The Blaylock family had been feuding with the Pritchard family for over 150 years, a feud that began in Scotland and followed them to the Blue Ridge Mountains of Appalachia. Don't you always find it amazing when you have these uh, families or groups of people who are feuding in their home country and it, it, it kind of follows them. They bring the feud with them. And then before you know it, they're raising hell at their neighbor that across the canyon. That was one of the elements to the story that I found so peculiar is how you have these two families and they're feuding in the homeland and they're feuding when they make it to the United States. <laughs> <laughs> just hold a grudge. No, I, I wonder if they came on the same boat and they're just sitting across the, you know, in the whole, whole bowels of the boat, just staring at each other, talking about one day. You cross, don't you cross this line. This is my side of the ship. Can you do Scottish? Ooh, that, that, really. that wee lass over there is a beach. The oh, only uh, point of reference I have for a Scottish accent is so I married an axe murderer. Head to paper. Now move your cranium and get the paper. Uh, I'm not. Uh, He's is, like, it's like an orange on a toothpick. Uh, you see, I'm not good at it. Does Mike Myers qualify for a Scottish accent, uh, uh, a real Scottish accent? I think he does base that on a family member. Bay City Rollers, and he's like, S-A-T-U-R-D-A-Y. I hate the colonel with his wee beady eyes. Oh, you're going to eat my chicken. Oh, anyway, I love that movie. Moving along. Mary married Austin Coffey, a well-to-do farmer, when Blaylock was just a boy. By now, he earned the nickname Keith, named after a local bare-knuckle boxer whose real name was Alfred Keith. And when I say he earned the nickname, Keith really did. Even as a child, he was known as a fiery fighter with a reputation for being naturally talented and particularly volatile when the situation called for it. Man, I must say, you know, bare knuckle boxing is just, uh, it's incredible to watch. And it takes some uh, really mean, tough people to do it. And you know, some of the uh, um, gypsy clan, Roma gypsy clans, to this day, settle disputes between families with a good old-timey bare-knuckle boxing match. And they'll actually all pull their money together and bet against the other family and the other fighter. As they should. And they, there was this incredible um, incredible documentary, I think it was called Bare Knuckle, and it was about this guy going through that and, and going into a fight. And uh, they do not play around. And then they send videos back and forth taunting each other. And they'd be like, oh, I'm getting drunk on your money. Well, Keith was a good kid. But, you know, if the situation called for it, he was being picked on. He saw someone else being picked on. He would, you know, take it take it to their ass, man. He just didn't care. He would fight somebody. So he was a pugilist. He would throw down. By all accounts, Keith and his stepfather got along famously. And Keith had great affection for the man who raised him. Austin was considered very conscientious, and those who knew him respected him, and he was very well-liked in this region. And in the rural mountains of Appalachia, sometimes violence was a matter of survival. Often law enforcement was not involved in settling disputes. In the hard mountain culture, not only was the law disregarded, but sometimes due to the fact that people lived in such rural communities, they were simply unavailable. 
For God-fearing people who still held strong to old world beliefs, the biblical eye for an eye wasn't figurative. It was literal. Appalachians couldn't trust justice from the courts. You never knew when a jury could be packed with relatives of your enemy. Oh, that's that's a bad thought. Now, even in modern day Appalachia, there's you know rural, um, very rural areas where it takes law enforcement an hour, hour and a half to get there. So you're basically on your own, right? Yeah, and so sometimes you are. Matters would be settled via mountain justice, a term we've heard here before. Many of the violent mountaineers who roamed were anonymous. Some of the worst violence happened to people who didn't have the education or inclination to take down written accounts. It took regional historians generations to preserve stories or oral histories of the wartime life in Appalachia. A great deal of firsthand information was forever lost to time. But of all the colorful characters and bloodthirsty villains who were known during the war between the states, none was remembered more than the outlaw Keith Blaylock. His story, as I've mentioned, Dylan, is the stuff of mountain ballads and legends. <laughs> and lucky us, we're going to talk about him today. Keith met Melinda Pritchard as children when they attended the same one-room school in Watauga County. Born in Caldwell County, Melinda was four years younger than Keith, but lived only about five miles away from him while they were growing up. They were known to be friends, roamed the woods together, and eventually, despite their family's dislike of each other, Keith and Melinda defied their bloodlines with a Romeo and Juliet-style relationship. The Capulets and the Montagues. When he was 17 years old, Keith carved their initials in a tree, connecting their family properties. Have you ever done that? No. With a boyfriend? No. Like carved your name somewhere, no. like defaced a never. church bench in like a historic church in the parkway? No. Well, one, I would never deface a historic landmark. But two, no, I've never done that. Man, I think that's so damn trashy when I see that. You go to one of these beautiful, you know, uh, preserved buildings, old Tommy. And it's like Linda was here and it's like was is like W U Z. Yeah. You're like nobody gives a fuck Linda. Her like David Hart's Jessica. Yeah. I'm like, you should stop hearting her for one. And you should do it somewhere else. You're probably not even together anymore. You know they're not. They probably got broke up. They probably broke up before they even got back down. As soon as the cell reception came in and like it got some some messed up text. You know, for... I don't think people carve their initials in trees anymore. Now I think they just get like a neck tattoo with their partner's name. And we know that makes for a lasting relationship. So you're saying that the neck tattoo, someone's is name. Is the new tree carving. Is the new tree carving. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. I'm still waiting for you to get a Heather tattoo. I do. No, I want the airbrush tag from the flea market. You know, I had one of those, but it was a fake tag. I got it. I was like one of the trashiest airbrush tags. Now, hear, now hear me out. Um, so I chose a horse running on a beach scene. Oh, my God. With like this purple sky. And then I had airbrushed on it. <laughs> Bocephus and Mr. Wiggles forever. Oh, so to clarify, it's a real airbrush tag. Yeah, it's just a, a fake couple. Okay. Because I don't know a Bocephus or a Mr. Wiggles, right? And you put this on your car. Yeah. Oh, I think I would have had a rainbow or maybe like a uh, some kind of, I don't know, rainbow and clouds in the background and a unicorn. That's what you would get? Yeah. Okay. Or, or what's a horse with wings? Oh, like a Pegasus? Like a Pegasus? Yeah. 
Yeah, I was just like, I was at the beach with my dad and just kind of on a goof was like, I'm going to get an airbrush tag and put it on my car. And I had like this Honda Accord. So I put the both Cephas and Mr. Wiggles tag. Yeah. Anywho, it, people questioned it. They, did, they didn't know what that meant. And of course, I wasn't going to tell them. So they got this little tree that connects their family properties. They carve little names there. It's so cute. Love has blossomed. Keith grew into a six foot two man with dark hair and was known to be lean and Uh-oh. strong. <laughs> a man. A man. Melinda is about a foot shorter than Keith, but described as a beauty with dark hair and blue eyes. The pair were married in April of nine. I'm sorry, I said 1961. 1861. <laughs> ah, that, that's quite different. <laughs> at a Presbyterian church at Coffee's Gap near Grandfather Mountain. Now, the Pritchard family, Melinda's family, they were Confederate sympathizers, secessionists. The Blaylocks were mostly Union supporters, and the Coffee family was split. However, Keith's stepfather, Austin Coffee, was known as a staunch Union man. The wedding would be one of the last times these families would join together in celebration instead of hunting each other down with a bloodlust. Like how you're staring at me like, huh? Well, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, that's where like the term shotgun wedding comes in. Like you get old girl pregnant, and even if you had no intentions of marrying her or staying with her, um, you know, someone in the family, dad, grandpa, literally held a shotgun on you as the preacher, you know, hitched you. Okay, but... There's, this isn't a shotgun wedding, honey. Well, I didn't, yeah, I know. I was just thinking about shotgun wedding. I heard it. <laughs> so it day. had nothing to do with what we were just hearing. Okay, cool. Because she is not with child. No. Okay. Just to clarify. And they're together willingly. Yes. Right. Despite the fact that their families just don't fucking like each other. So uh, to, it's nothing like a shotgun wedding, basically, is what I'm pointing out. No, this is a <laughs> this is a marriage based on love and mutual respect. Ah, yes, yes. and a desire to be together, which is uh, how our marriage started out. Uh, yeah, I think it still remains that but way. It basically, has evolved uh, some over the years. Uh, necessity and the economy keep us together. It's true. In attendance at the wedding, which had fiddlers and bagpipe music playing, um, songs from the old clans. Some of them were like war battle songs that the old clans would play back home, which I thought was kind of cool that you have warrior clan music playing at your wedding. Um, our three families. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. That I mentioned before, plus the Boyds, who are intermarried among the Pritchards, the Boylocks, and the Coffees. So you got these four families, 
and they're all like merry and cut. I mean, and this happens a lot in Appalachia because it is such a rural community, these places. And you got these families settled there that there is a lot of like kind of intermarrying among the different families. Yeah, well, this is going to happen in any small village in any country or region well, in the world. Out, yeah, we've seen it all over the world. Yeah. But, and, uh, you know, it is something that did happen in Appalachia. And, of course, you know, there's the stereotype about you married your cousin. But a lot of cases, your cousin was the only one around to marry. Well, yeah, and that's when you, <laughs> you get to, like, third, fourth, fifth cousin. Right. Um, Which is not a really big deal. You can marry your grandpa, you well, know, if you want to just, you know, some, marry someone that you already have, are comfortable with. Right? This is not House of Dragon. Oh, my God. Okay, so one of those cousins in attendance was a man named John Boyd, who was a fervent confederate. Fervent confederate. Also present at the wedding was famous North Carolina lawyer and eventual U.S. congressman Zebulon Vance. And in recent controversy, they removed the Vance Monument from downtown Asheville. Ah, uh, Yes. Yes, for a, for a time, it was just simply shrouded in sheets. And it looked like a big dick <laughs> that was covered up. It is. Anywho, yeah. moving along. During the wedding festivities, there was a lot of discussion about the Southern Rebellion and Lincoln's call for 75,000 volunteers to squash the crisis below the Mason-Dixon line. There is talk about the situation at Fort Sumter. During the wedding... Vance asks Keith if he's going to fight for his home state of North Carolina and join the fight as a Confederate. Yet Keith himself follows his stepfather's beliefs. He's a Union supporter with no intention of joining the Confederacy. But soon there's little choice in the matter. By the first call for volunteers, nearly 4,000 men and boys from the mountains join up with the Confederacy. Before the war's end, thousands more will enlist. Recruiters are dispatched across the peaks and valleys to pressure able-bodied males to join the fight. Eighteen of Keith's cousins on the coffee side enlist. But Keith weighed his options. He could go into hiding for the duration of the war, but how long could he actually last? He could travel as far north as Kentucky to enlist as a Union soldier. Keith didn't like his choices. None were appealing, especially since he had just married his sweetheart, Melinda. I mean, he went from being a fighter to a lover, and he doesn't want to go back to being a fighter, Dylan. No, and he probably doesn't. I mean, honestly, most people probably didn't believe in the war all that much, you know? Well, there's some misconceptions, which, you know, we've discussed this on previous episodes when we've just, you know, kind of gotten into, like, Civil War history, is that one... There were tons of slaves in Appalachia. Now, there were slaves, most definitely. Um, there were slave owners in Appalachia. But the majority of people were like poor farmers, and they didn't have slaves. So they really didn't have like a dog in the fight. You did have some of the rich, more wealthier folks who maybe owned lots of land and did have slaves. But, you know, even in our own county, Haywood County, um, I looked at a like census um, at the public library some months ago. And the largest slave owner in our county was a man named Robert Love, who I believe went on to be a colonel. And he has like a love lane in our town is named for this man. He owned lots of acreage in the community. And he owned 50 slaves. And he was like the largest slave owner in the county. I mean, in 50 people, yeah, that's, that's definitely a lot of slaves to own. But, um, you know, it's not like these plantations where there were hundreds, you know. 
So I'm just saying things were a little different in Appalachia. I mean, it's kind of an interesting history when you get into looking at it. But people also assume that if you were from, you know, south of the Mason-Dixon, even if you were a mountain mountain person, that you automatically were Confederate. And that's a misconception. Western North Carolina specifically had a lot of Union sympathizers and a lot of Union supporters. Well, it's the same old song and dance. You have the regular person, the regular folk. Not trying to fight a rich man's war. Fighting, bleeding, and dying to support the interest of very rich people. And interests that very seldom align with their interests. Which is what happens today. And they're Fortunate fo- son, baby. They're forced. Uh, a, major- a lot of them were forced or, um, you know, for either forced by the draft or um, just conscription, from, con- which is yeah. what we're going to get into. And that and that's another thing that people don't realize when they say, oh, well, your family fought for the Confederacy. Uh, like you must be some type of way. They were forced. The conscription laws, you either signed up and fought or you were shot dead like a dog. And we're going to talk about that, Dylan, because Keith decides to avoid conscri- conscription. So he's going to join the Confederate Army. Though it is against, like, every fiber of his being. He does not want to do this. He doesn't believe in this cause. He doesn't want to go off to war. But he figures out, after weighing all of these options, it's really the only thing he can do. So he plans. He's got a great plan, though, Dylan. He's going to cross enemy lines when the company is shipped to Virginia. Keith will cross over and join the Union side. If he deflects at just the right time... He can be listed as missing rather than a documented deserter. Melinda will remain safe back home because the neighbors who are Confederates will sympathize with the young bride and look after her. He's going to crawl dad them old Confederates when he gets up there in the north. He's going to crawl dad them? What yeah. does that mean? <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, flipping the script on the ass. Yeah. yeah. So in June, he travels from Blowing Rock to Lenore to enlist in Company F, 26 North Carolina Infantry. After being issued a uniform and the basics, Keith treks with 21 others to the railroad depot at Newton for transport to Camp Carolina for training. Keith is named a sergeant. Now, on this trip, he is met by a young man standing only about five foot four. The boy declares he is going to fight with Keith, and he's eager to do it. Melinda, it turns out, didn't like the idea of her husband marching off to war either. The spunky 16-year-old bride cut her hair short, piled on men's trousers, boots, and a baggy shirt, which covered her, as they were described, smallish breasts. Ah. She called herself Sam Blaylock and enlisted as Keith's younger brother. The others who served with her said she was a good-looking boy who stood about 5'4 and weighed only 130 pounds. <laughs> that little dude's like, that big old guy, Keith, right there is going to be my battle buddy, right? So you got a six foot two guy and a five foot four guy, and we're trying to say these dudes are brothers? Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. That's my big bro. But how cool is that? That so, Melinda's a badass. She's like, fuck it, I'm going too. Now, is Keith aware? He's, of- no, from what I understand, he went to join, and surprise, here she is. She couldn't stand it. So, you know, this uh, famously happened uh, more than once. Uh, you had people lying about their age, which has happened uh, maybe in every war. And uh, you, you had some, uh, gosh, I believe you told the story of a woman who was just a badass, like kicked ass. And uh, I, can't, I can't recall right now who that was. But, uh, yeah, I, I'd say there's, a, yeah, probably a lot of people, Mulan tried that, right? I, 
Yes, exactly. Now, at the time of the Blaylocks, uh, the time they they volunteered, the Confederate Army was placing relatives in the same unit because this was early on. Sam and Keith were mustered in, and I'm going to call her Sam for a few minutes here. Sam and Keith were mustered into the same company, even able to share the same tent, and ended up in the regiment commanded by friend and future governor of North Carolina, Zebulon Vance. Whoa, well, young Sam, you're awful familiar with me there. <laughs> yeah, so Melinda slash Sam would later recall, quote, that was the start of our great adventure. However, Keith's plan was foiled when the regiment was not posted to Virginia, but to New Bern, North Carolina, where they were attacked by troops commanded under General Ambrose Burnside. The Union lines were too far away to break through. Instead, Keith is pulling garrison duty at Kinston, which is a camp along a big swampy patch with little opportunity to escape. The only chance of liberation is swimming the Albemarle Sound or walking hundreds of miles to Virginia, which could be a huge risk. They could risk capture, be considered deserters. So the Blaylocks found themselves Confederate soldiers, much to their chagrin. Keith determined they had to bide their time until another plan formed. He and Melinda performed their duties, uh, mostly routine duties. They aroused no suspicion from the other soldiers it went unnoticed that Sam slash Melinda never joined the other guys in the swimming hole or bathed with them. Maybe they just thought Sam had peculiar hygiene habits. Well, yeah, uh, they eventually nicknamed Sam Stinky Sam <laughs> and Smelly Smelly or yeah, Stinky Sam. And then um, I'm wondering if they shared the same tin. Are they like snuggling together? Oh, like I, I went inside. And people are like, they're just uh, that's just a real close set of brothers right there. Let me tell you. I went inside and I dare, dare believe what my eyes showed me that night in that tent. Sam was on top of Keith and I do declare there was cannonballs going everywhere. They was wrestling. Yeah, yeah. Looked like two two hogs wrestling in a sack. <laughs> With his uh, uh, small, small-breasted boy was a, t- a top Keith. <laughs> I'm sorry. Then one day, while on patrol crossing the Noose River, the regiment is ambushed. Melinda, or Sam, is shot in the shoulder. Keith carries his wife back to camp. There, the surgeon discovers the big Blaylock secret. Colonel Vance discharges Melinda from service and gives her a $50 enlistment bounty. Surprisingly, Vance, who had, remember, attended the Blaylock wedding, wasn't even mad. He was more amused by the ruse. <laughs> and there really wasn't any like formal paperwork for discharge or anything. There was a, there was nothing really written about this situation. So he and it wasn't like he could really, you know, take it up the chain or I mean he was just kind of like, "Okay, here's your money, go home." Put your ex here, son. You have been discharged. There wasn't even really any like paperwork to outline what would happen if a female joined the regiment. The army. But Keith can't allow his bride to go home alone. So he finds a thicket of poison oak, which he rolls around in. He develops such a terrible rash, the surgeon was baffled and ended up sending Keith home as well, believing some contagious disease could infect the whole, like, squadron. He's caught the leprosy. Yeah, they didn't know what it was. They thought it could be, you know, something that was from the, the swamp. 
itching disease. They, you know, they they were really baffled by it, and I guess it was such a severe case of poison, like poison oak. I believe he's called a case of the broken heart. Finally free from military service, Keith and Melinda return home to the mountains of western North Carolina. Keith cares for his poison ivy by taking brine baths. So, you know, just throw the turkey dinner in there and Keith. I'm not really sure what kind of brine it was, but he healed it up pretty quickly. By the letter of the law, Keith's discharge was honorable and legal. Yet the Confederacy's Conscription Act went into effect as the couple arrived home. Yet draft officers set their sights on Keith. And truth be told, it was his own family, the Boyds and some of the Coffees, who reported him to the Home Guard. As soon as his medical condition had cleared, they began hounding the young man. One day, well-armed Confederate agents show up at the Blaylock cabin on Grandfather Mountain to give Keith an ultimatum. Re-enlist or be branded as a shirker and be subject to the new draft law. Leaving him with a big choice to make, they threaten, We'll be back. Wait a second. Be branded a shirker? A shirker. For shirking your responsibilities to your country? A shirker. <laughs> Son of a bitch is a shirker. I was on the front porch shirking, and next thing I know, they, the, the law was up there talking crazy to I Keith. Was, <laughs> I was just shirking and shitting. That's how I spent my Saturday morning. Sitting and looking. Sitting and looking. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just like your uh, business, what was it, Sitting and Shitting? Sitting and Shitting. It is a restaurant where we sell vintage chairs, right? And you can just sit. And, and try the and chair out. Bullshit. Have a big, uh, greasy meal, right, of comfort food. And then next thing you know, you're like, I'll take this one right here with the wicker bottom. I think I done blowed a hole in it. Well, I'm just saying, maybe you're, you're shirking, just chilling, and you're shitting. You're just bullshitting. Shirking and shitting. Anyway, Keith isn't about to be roped back into the calls he does not support. He heads for the woods. Grandfather Mountain is surrounded by thick forests dotted with ravines and caves. Plenty of hiding spots. His wife, Melinda, helps devise communications such as hog calls, quilts hung on the clothesline, and candles burning in certain windows of the cabin to signal her husband. Austin Coffee has a secret tunnel that opens in a thicket about 100 yards from the family home from the back door, where Keith is able to occasionally slip into his parents' house. Yeah. But Keith has an advantage. He knows the mountain like the back of his hand and has plenty of hiding spots that enable him to spy on the Confederates. Soon, other draft dodgers join Keith. He grew out a goatee, a mustache... Definitely an image befitting of an outlaw. The gang of outlaws built rudimentary huts on the high mountain slopes and were able to hunt, fish, and forage for food. The home guard in its early stages was very disorganized. By 1862, Major Harvey Bingham takes command. He establishes a headquarters, Camp Mast, near Boone, North Carolina. Bingham begins training the troops and whipping them into shape. He vows to arrest every deserter, outlier, and shirker in the area, with Keith Blaylock topping the list. So he's almost like the face of shirking in the the region. He does not like a shirker. (laughs) So he's got the wanted poster of this like bushy, scraggly-haired man, this big hulking man. Probably looks like every mountain man. Known to shirk responsibilities to his country. Yes. 
$2 reward for the the dead or alive. Bring me that man's head. Bingham's plan is to approach every able-bodied man and command him to surrender. If he refuses or run, Bingham's men will shoot them. So basically, join up or die is the slogan of this Confederate home guard. So Keith and uh, Sam, what was her, I'm sorry. Melinda. Melinda. Have been through a lot at this point. They have. So they got married, fell in love, and, you know, I'm sure they had some tough times there because their families hated each other and all that mess. And then he gets, you know, then the war breaks out, you know, scary, tumultuous time. And then he get, he get, he's like, well, damn it. You know, he's wrestling what to do, decides to go join. Maybe I can get this over with. She comes with him, you know. She gets shot? She gets shot, found out. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. He has to catch the poison ivies all over his body to come home. You were going to say on his dick. <laughs> no. I and, can tell. And then, you know, he comes home, and then his family, it seems like uh, some of them are disappointed. And I'm sure that was a common occurrence for your family, friends, um, to dial you out. Well, yeah. Well, some of, I mean, they were opposing political ideologies. Right. Right? Because you have this these intermarried families of the Boyds, the Coffees. Some of them are unionists. Some of them are Confederates. So, yeah, they're dialing each other out. And so he's been runt off from his home. Done runt off. He's off in the woods. He done grew this thick beard. You know, the itch is a lot. Luscious. And uh, he's having to knock bitches out with one shot because he is a badass bare knuckle monster. And uh, now, you know, he's being threatened with death. Now he's got the wanted poster for shirking. Well, he doesn't really have a wanted poster. but Oh, it's in the post office. I can see it in my head. He's on the list. Ah. He's on the, the He's hit list. At the top of the list. Bingham has him on the list. He's the face of shirking. He is. So by August, Bingham's men surround the cabin atop Grandfather Mountain, demanding that Keith join them. Before he has a chance to escape, the home guard, including his two step-uncles, Reuben and William Coffey, who are proving very relentless uh, with this Confederate group, Keith convinces them to camp outside overnight in order for him to pack and prepare for the war. But before dawn, Keith and Melinda manage to arm themselves with guns and a few supplies, heading off into the woods together. Joining up with the communal living outlaws who are already hiding out, the pair manage to hide for a period. But a price has been put on Keith's head. By now, nearly 1,200 sharkers are hiding out in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Keith's crew of outlaws is growing, and they're men who are determined, loyal, and most importantly, can shoot. Man, when I was warm, when I was younger, I tell you, um, I was caught in this situation one time. I, I shirked this old girl, and I didn't even know her name. Is that the one we saw in the grocery store the other day? No, she that was is... like, "Hey, remember me?" Hey, and she just like kept trying to talk to you. Well, for one, that was a dumb joke. I, just, I never I, shirked this old gal. I just walked away. And uh, yeah, we were in the store, just doing her, minding our own business, and walk past. And then you, you know, when you walk past someone and they they kind of give you that slow look, and you're like, oh, "Okay, this person knows me, but I don't, I don't fucking know them." You know, excuse me. 
And uh, so I was like that, and I'm going to keep it moving. And she's like, don't I know you? I was like, uh, yeah, but she still don't know knew you. you. Heather don't even break stride, dude. You know, most well, people. I'm not going to stop so you can flirt with some dusty girl. I was not going to flirt with her for one because I believe her ass was back on aisle five. It certainly wasn't with her. And um, I was going to keep walking too. And, and But no, Heather, Heather, I'm stopping. I was like, what? Uh, I don't know. And then um, Heather just doesn't break stride. She keeps walking and she's I like, to, I don't have time for this I shit. I had to fetch some cheddar cheese. She was, go- <laughs> she was going to the dairy section and she was not wasting any time. No. And then, okay, so it turns out, I'll, I'll, I'll wrap this up. Um, she's like, oh, weren't you with a, a Baltimore? Ex. Yeah. Baltimore. And I was like, yeah, you know, it was like fucking years ago, dude. I was like, uh, yeah, no, no. Yeah, no. me and Nosfer too broke up. <laughs> that thou shall not be named. And uh, and then I'm just like, yeah. And she's like, oh, so who's that? And I was like, that's my wife. Is that your new girl? And you were like, yeah, I'm a new girl of four years. That's my wife of four <laughs> years, okay? And she's over there by the, the extra large brown jumbo eggs. It's and true. I got to get going. Yeah. I okay. know. I was on a mission to make breakfast. You need to go look for your ass, girl, because it is not with you, and you is you know, dusted. I don't mean to body shame, but that was one concave ass. It reminded me of your ass. It was just not there. Keith becomes their leader. These, these wild mountain men, these shirkers, they look to Keith for leadership. They share lookout duties, they forage for food, but Bingham will not be outdone by these mountaineers. Bingham organizes a band of 50 men to attack the Grandfather Mountain deserters. Blaylock and his men open fire on the Confederate home guard. Keith himself took a ball in the left arm. (laughs) Thinking about those bullets back in the day, man. Uh, You know... That shit, you know that had to fucking hurt, bro. When Melinda was out fighting with him, she took a ball to the face. You know, I mean, things is just crazy out there. It's warfare. He fled further up the mountain and found a hog pen where he spent a few hours, you know, hiding out. The outlaws were able to hold off the search party and give Keith and Melinda time to make their escape. The couple goes down the mountain to Shoals Mill on the Watauga River where they ford the river for Banner Elk. Once they get to Banner Elk, Uncle Lewis Banner guides them into Tennessee during the dead of night, hiking over the mountain trails. And to the uninitiated, fording a river would be crossing it in a a shallow, accessible spot. And that is known as a ford across a river. Yeah. Yeah. I play Oregon Trail, so I know all about it. Pigeon Forge was originally named Pigeon Ford. Because there was some great spots across the damned old river. Yeah, you want to go and, you know, maybe about a, a foot and... Like Wait, a foot and a half, right? That, was, that might not have been Pigeon Ford, dude. I think that might have been Canton. You gotta was known as Pigeon. You gotta Ford. go in the river slow, otherwise you might have to caulk your wagon to cross. Anyway, let's get on with our. I said I play a lot of Oregon Trail. Once in Tennessee, Keith joins up with the feared guerrilla, the guerrilla warfare colonel George Kirk, who is known for his bloodthirst. He goes all in with the Union Army, but doesn't officially sign enlistment paperwork until 1864. Kirk is a Tennessee native deserter who has made it his mission to drive out the Confederate Army operating in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Kirk recognizes Keith's leadership abilities and knowledge of the mountains. He's named a scout captain and a recruiting officer. Keith's job is a mountain pilot, establishing an escape route for Unionists and deserters into Union territory in Tennessee. 
Well, yeah, anytime you have someone taking part in guerrilla warfare tactics, it's going to be someone native to the area, typically. And um, they're going to uh, strike at their enemies, disappear back into the woods or whatever. They know the terrain very well. They uh, know how to escape. They know where the best place for ambush is, um, all that stuff. And they know what the weather is going to be like. They know what the seasons are you know, going to be there. And so they uh, typically have an advantage in a lot of scenarios. And, and then you have a large force. Can't That's what messes them up because you can't just you can't just ride roughshod over them. You know what I mean? If you're like, if you're in an open battlefield and it's very effective. I mean, that's the North Vietnamese. Thank you for your strategery. And every other guerrilla force, uh, after ask the Afghanis against uh, the Mujahideen against the Russians, bro. That's some damn Ukrainians right now. This is probably like, oh, fuck Vlad. You know what I'm saying? That's when that old dude, they blew that damn bridge up, bro. From Russia to the Crimea? Yep. So you're saying you are a fan of guerrilla warfare? Um, well, I mean, I, I find it very interesting. I'm not saying I have like a guerrilla warfare rocks t-shirt or anything. You're a lover, not a fighter. That's true. You're like Keith after he got married. I mean, I'm into guerrilla romance. You're like a domesticated house it's pet. Like you just come out of the ditch or the bushes and you like romance your wife and then you just disappear back into the shadows. And she's just like her face is still itching from your prickly beard. And, and now she's pregnant. That is not you at all. But okay. So uh, Colonel Kirk trusted Keith so much that he allowed him to work alone or sometimes with handpicked men who crossed into North Carolina to gather intelligence and conduct raids. Yet Confederate sympathizers made it their mission to take down Keith Blaylock. His neighbors, who remained loyal to the cause, saw his actions as flagrant and came to resent the man who bucked their beliefs. Two members of the Moore family, in particular, put a target on Keith's back, vowing to take him down. The Bushwhackers would kill Keith on one of his many trips into the North Carolina mountains, at least. This was their plan. Keith and Melinda returned to North Carolina with 25 well-armed riders. They deliberately avoid the conscription patrols. Soon word reaches the Blaylocks that the Moors are after Keith. He has his own network of informants. So, you know, he's in the know. You're not going to surprise him. But when Blaylock hears that Bingham has killed one of their neighbors who had not halted on command, Keith breaks up his group into smaller squads who will seek retribution. He is mad as hell when he finds out one of his neighbors back on Grandfather Mountain was shot and killed by this Bingham. Well, yeah, and it probably took while a while for the news to travel to him because it's, you know, usually just by word of mouth. But, yeah, I mean, because for one, it's his neighbor. You know, he feels some kind of connection there, I'm sure. Might have even known who the person was. Well, yeah. But he's also might feel a bit of responsibility because they were in the area looking for him and his his, uh, his peeps. Exactly, Dylan. So in the first ambush, the squad kills three home guards. Keith hunts down a man named Robert Green, who was a cohort of the Coffee Brothers. Remember, he has the two step-uncles, <laughs> William and Reuben Coffee, okay. that are Confederates. So Green's like one of their, you know, buds. Green was a, a prosperous local Confederate with a residence at Globe in Caldwell County, and he had another they described as nice home in Blowing Rock. 
It is speculated that Keith was told Green was the man who shot him back on Grandfather Mountain when he took the, the ball to the arm. Oh, Green's over there in Catawba in his shitty house, his old shit shack. But if you wait a little while, he'll be back over there at his nice house. Keith kept a hit list. And if your name went on that list, you had hell to pay. He was going to hunt your ass down. Oh, man, you think after, like, every time, like, he gets somebody or kills them, he, like, takes the, the, the tattered, dog-eared, yellowed paper out and, like, marks them off with a big, like, a marker? Yeah. Nice. I hope so. Informants divulged information that Robert Green would be traveling from Blowing Rock to his home at Globe by wagon. So Keith's men laid in wait. When Green spotted Blaylock on the road, he jumped down from his wagon, running down the mountainside. Keith took careful aim with his sharps rifle and fired. Green is wounded but not dead. Keith approaches the man who's lying there on the ground, screaming. He checks out the thigh bone, which has been cracked in half, and leaves, feeling a proper degree of revenge has been served. Damn. So wounds him, doesn't kill him. From what I understand, Green is crippled after this. Or, you know, after this he walks with a limp is very disabled after this happens. So he has to drag around. Yeah. Oh, man. That'd suck. For the rest of his life. It's just a, you, you'll always remember that guy kicking your ass. In the WNC or Western North Carolina mountains, residents are more concerned about this local blood feud rather than the war itself. No one is safe. Blaylock's men ambush home guards who in turn retaliate by murdering a union man or burning his farm. If the Blaylock man doesn't get you, the home guard will. This is what people begin to think. It becomes a dangerous game of cat and mouse with many victims left in the wake. Farms go up in flames. Boys and men are found hanging from trees. Bodies are being thrown into laurel thickets as the death toll grows. The Coffey family agrees on a truce. If Austin Coffey, um, Coffey and Keith's mother are left alone and their farm is left unscathed, then William, Reuben, and McCabe Coffey, who are Austin's brothers, because again, they're totally on opposite sides of the political spectrum here, will be given the same respect. Yeah, what's bad in a situation like this is you have, uh, with this retaliatory, you know, acts they're doing against each other, it's like they try to one-up each other. And, and people's getting madder and madder. And these are brothers. And then next thing you know, they do some old messed up stuff. Austin, like, William, Reuben, McCabe. I mean, they're all brothers. And you've got to think they're they're so torn by this uh, pol this political ideology and their beliefs that they have to agree not to burn each other's farms down. And these are brothers. They love each other. They grew up, you know, they grew up in the same house, come from the same mom and dad. Like, but but it's so bad that they have to come up with this, like, flimsy agreement because nobody feels secure. I mean, can you imagine fearing your own brother or sister? Well, I mean, the, the Civil War, the uncivil war, as I like to call it, of course, um, was famous for, you know, pitting brother against brother and cousin against cousin. I know, and in this case, family it against like, family. literally did. Keith's raiders attack a man named Carol Moore. Again, the Moores were after Keith. They, they had devised a plan that we're going to kill him when he comes back. So Keith's writers attack this man, and he's a pretty well-known officer in the Home Guard, along with his brother and four nephews. The Moors are armed to the teeth with their own plan of murdering Keith Blaylock. Now, in the early morning hours, a gunfight ensues. 
Carol Moore has his leg blown clean off, forever disabling him. Melinda, who fights alongside her husband, is wounded in both the shoulder and the forearm in this fight. It's a very vicious battle. She manages to escape to Knoxville, where a physician treats her injuries. It is then that she learns she's pregnant. So she's been out fighting, fighting, and she's pregnant. Damn, that little, shot. that little baby's going to be a hell raiser. <laughs> right? But Melinda hangs up her guns until the birth of her son, Columbus, and she decides she's going to wait it out in Tennessee. Round, Keith's family situation in North Carolina is tenuous. There are, you know, th- these divided families. There's t- they're torn. Uh, emotions are running high. Their loyalties divided. I mean, it's a mess. Can you imagine? I mean, we all probably have some dysfunction, but can you imagine this kind of dysfunction in your family? Uh, no. I mean, you really think about it? Most of us have, like, never experienced anything like that. By January of 1864, General Robert Vance's attempt to break into Tennessee collapses, and Colonel Kirk has successfully raided Morgington, North Carolina. Unionists are emboldened on both sides of the border, North Carolina and Tennessee. Joseph E. Franklin, a friend of Keith Blaylock, had led Kirk's group into the North Carolina mountains and into Watauga County specifically, which by this point is in a state of complete chaos and anarchy because you have, it's not the war, it's these fucking blood feuds between these families. Oh my God. Right. And it's just getting worse and worse and, the, and you know, the stuff they're doing to each other gets worse and worse and, you know, yeah, it's just totally out of control. Keith Blaylock wore a federal officer's uniform on raids and arrogantly appeared on the roads wearing this officer's uniform, this union, federal officer's uniform, almost daring confrontation from any Confederate sympathizers. Keith Blaylock decided it was time to make a move on his Confederate relatives. His, um, so he first visits the home of Reuben Coffee with several of his men, but he didn't find him there. Next, he rode to William Coffey's home, where they were able to capture his step-uncle. They marched him to a mill owned by a man named James Gragg. Keith orders his step-uncle to sit down on this bench, but instead of pulling the trigger himself, Keith commands one of his men to carry out the execution. A man named Perkins shot Reuben, I'm sorry, shot William Coffey and just left his body where it fell. So he's, like, seeking such revenge that he executes his step-uncle. Yeah, so it's the point of no return. Yeah. I mean, he's just like, I don't know if I'm going to win all this, but you certainly will not do anything else to me. Exactly. It was soon after this that Keith was engaged in another bloody battle with the Moore family near Globe in an orchard owned by the Moore family. Jesse Moore got the drop on Keith. Moore managed to shoot through one of Keith's eyes. Keith managed to crack out a shot to Jesse's heel, and another of his men was wounded in the thigh. So after this, Keith has one eye. And I have some older photos that I will be posting on our social media, specifically Instagram. And you can see in the photo, the one eye is like super squinty where I guess, it, you know, he was shot and he chooses not to wear an eye patch. God, that would suck. I mean, at least you got one eye left, I reckon. Look at me, I'm a good eye. That would be tough, losing any of your uh, senses like that. But I have to say, an eye patch is hot. Yeah, it's pretty badass. You know, like Daryl Hannah, Kill Bill. It's fucking sexy. 
love a hot chick in an eye patch. I'm just saying. A hot pirate dude in an eye patch, too. I would keep cryptic notes in my eye patch. You would? Yeah. Written on just tiny pieces of paper and very tiny letters. The reprisals were doled out on both sides. On February 5th of 1865, after the war has ended, Dylan, a band of Confederates raided Coffee Gap. Austin Coffee was off visiting his brother McCabe, who was, remember, a Confederate. However, another Unionist named, um, I'm sorry, this was another Confederate named James Boyd, uh, who happens to be one of their relatives, tells these uh Confederates where they can find Austin Coffee. Austin was captured and marched off toward Blowing Rock. The men camped at an abandoned farmhouse. It was after dinner that Austin Coffee, a man of advanced years, had dozed off to sleep when the leader, James Mar- Marlowe, ordered one of his men to kill the old man. And I believe at this point, Austin Coffee's like in his 70s. John Walker, the soldier who was ordered to to kill the old man, refused the order. He was saying, like, I have no reason to kill this elderly man. A rough mountaineer named Robert Glass volunteered to do the job instead. Glass leaned over without concern and placed the pistol next to Austin Coffey's head. Though Austin Coffey had been a Union man, he was described by those who knew him as a big-hearted farmer who didn't have a violent bone in his body. Austin Coffey was known to feed both Confederate and Union soldiers and allowed them to camp on his property. It'll be like Dateline. Yes. He lit up a room when he walked into it. Yeah, and he and his wife Mary were known to treat both sides uh, equally and would treat, Mary would like help if soldiers were wounded, like dress out their wounds and they would cook and offer them food and take care of them on both sides. Because even though Austin Coffey was a unionist or a union person, supporter, sympathizer, he felt like, you know, these are my neighbors. And even with his own brothers, they didn't get along, but he, you know, he still wanted to go visit his brothers and care for his brothers. Well, they sound like kind people with a strong moral compass. The Confederates threw Austin Coffey's body in a laurel thicket. It was only discovered about a week later when a dog was seen trotting down a road with a hand in its mouth. When a party of people backtracked the dog, they found the body of Austin Coffey. Among Keith's riders was a a man named Levi Coffey. Now, it's really unclear to me if he was related to Austin, but it's very likely because the Coffey family was quite large, spanning Watauga and Caldwell counties. Levi was spending the night in one of the homes of a union sympathizer, um, and this was through Keith Blaylock's network. These uh, union folks would house and hide men, specifically these union guys, So Levi Coffey awakes to find Confederate Benjamin Green. And yes, he is related to Robert Green that uh, Keith shot earlier and uh, fucked up his leg. So Benjamin Green, along with some other men, are surrounding this house. Levi Coffey manages to run out of the house where he is met by a hailstorm of gunfire. He manages to slip into the woods but is hit in the shoulder. Keith Blaylock realizes he is not done with the Green family. He and his men pay a night call to a man named Lot Green near Blowing Rock. So this is um, around the same time that Levi Coffey is being attacked, that they are off paying a visit to Lot Green. 
Unbeknownst to Keith, Lot Green was expecting a late night visitor and willingly opened the door to the Union Raiders. When he saw Keith and the band of men armed on his front door, he's uh, this doorstep. He opens the door, sees them and just slams the door in their face and runs. Fortunately for Green, he had relatives who were members of the Home Guard that were staying at the house that night. Blaylock, who now has Levi Coffee along with him, who's run through the woods, is shot in the shoulder, but manages to meet up with them to raid this green cabin. Um, and these five other men um, tell these Confederates, you have to surrender. One um, of the men asked, uh, what treatment will you give us? And Keith Blaylock replies, as you deserve, damn you. Oh my gosh. Which is a great response. It is. The man, I'm sorry, the men inside the cabin fire through the windows. One of Blaylock's men, 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 (laughs) one of Blaylock's men is wounded and realizing he may, may be outnumbered decides they have to retreat. The men in the cabin track this blood trail to another cabin owned by John Walker. And this is where Blaylock's team has gone to hide out after being attacked. Another wild shootout commences, but Keith manages to escape once again with only a slight wound. A Georgia deserter named Edmund Ivy perishes in the gunfight. When Keith learns that John Boyd is the person who has given up his stepfather, leading to Austin Coffey's death, Keith vows revenge. So nearly a year after the war had ended, um, in February of 1866, Boyd was walking near his home. Blaylock appears from behind some bushes. Sensing danger, Boyd swiped at Blaylock with his cane. The old man hit Keith's arm, and that's when Keith pulls out his sharps rifle and blows a hole through John Boyd. Oh, damn, son. Even after all the bloodshed, Keith Blaylock made no bones about returning with his wife and children to Grandfather Mountain. He drew his veteran's pension and even dabbled in politics a bit. No way. After the war. He got to... Go back to his life, has his pension, and was just chilling. Yeah, I mean, think about it. a lot of people probably wouldn't show their face back there because they've killed all of these Confederates. Yeah. And there's been this huge blood feud happening. A.K.A. other locals. They might just huh. settle someplace else, but not Keith. He's like, fuck it, I'm going home. And just like dare somebody to do something. Well, you've got to imagine he carries around a bit or his reputation proceeds him. And the legend of his exploits, right? Now, earlier, I think I said the war had ended in 1865, but that wasn't right. Oh, when did it end? Well, it was May of 1865. So it was actually, the when I said that I meant it was just like a couple months before the war had ended. But this murder takes place a year after the war. That was close enough. (sighs) Anywho. That was close enough. Keith Blaylock died August 11th, 1913 at age 77. He was pumping a hand car on a stretch of mountain railroad track when he overshot a steep curve and landed in a chasm. The hand car landed on top of him, crushing his body. His wife, Melinda, had passed away in 1903. When his wife passed, it was said that Keith lost his mind. He was overwhelmed with grief. His oldest son, Columbus, uh, took over his father's affairs and moved the elderly man to Hickory, North Carolina and moved him in, you know, away from Grandfather Mountain. 
According to rumors, Boyd and more family members were seen in the vicinity of the area just before Keith's death. Yet no one has been able to substantiate those claims and the death has been ruled an accident. But it remains one of those rumors that perhaps his death was not an accident. I guess you never know. Now, Keith, who fought so vigorously against the Confederacy, ironically has a headstone that reads, Soldier, 26 North Carolina Infantry, Confederate States of America. Ass-kicking, bare-knuckled champion. The Blaylocks raised a total of five children together. Man, man, that's a, that'd be some badass ancestors to have, you know? If you could trace your uh, 23 and me back to Keith. Right? Blaylock is a, a pretty popular mountain name. That's true. That's As true. As is coffee. And, but I bet they got like different branches, like the good Blaylocks and the bad Blaylocks, the smart Blaylocks and the dumb Blaylocks and the pretty Blaylocks like, is there and the like ugly the, Blaylocks. Are you part of the ugly Packers? Um, no. You're, the, you're part of the big-headed Packers. Yeah. There's like the big-headed Packers and then like the normal-sized Head packers. Yeah. And they'd be like, you mean the tiny ham packers? Be like, no. Well, you know, about uh, 60 years ago, the tiny ham packers crossed up with the big head packers. And that boy is one of them big headed, tiny handed packers. That's true. <laughs> How does that happen? Uh, I don't know. It's, I'm a genetic uh, freak. How does someone with such broad shoulders and a giant fucking head? Yeah. I mean, your melon is big. Man, if I had but somebody that's going to speak Portuguese, you've got like tiny Trump hands. Well, they're a little Whopper Junior hands. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have small feet. Yeah. But have, you know what? You have like small lady feet. They're yeah. very dainty. I think you could do like an Only Toes account. You have really pretty little feet. They're so dainty. I know what people's out there thinking now. It's not true. It's not true. Because I have a very ample um, penis. Ample. I don't think anybody was thinking so They was that. out there like, I bet he's got a little old Peter. That's what they was thinking because they'd be like, look at his hands, look at his feet. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, yeah, I have plenty of penis. I, I don't have the extra penis. It ain't like I just got, like, penis laying on the coffee table. You know what I'm saying? Um, but, uh, Yeah, I do it, know it what works. you're saying, okay? I've seen it. It works. But you don't need to it's describe good. it to, like, everybody. I, don't, I know. I don't think our listeners in, like, Slovakia or Russia, mm -hmm. Germany, they don't care about your penis, Okay. And, and your, your listeners in West Virginia don't care either. Nobody cares, Dylan. And no one was thinking that. Well, you know, for the few people that might have, and now they're having a little chuckle, but and I'll for, stop talking about it. Thank you for it. clarifying. But it is, my penis is an international entertainer, so those people in Slovakia very well could know of it and his exploits and his tiny little bike he rides around. <laughs> what is wrong with you a unicycle oh my god with a big hat you know dylan you're sitting here what if i just what if i talked about my labia like you talk about your dick on this show oh well see now you're saying i didn't say that word no you said paint okay so what if i just start talking about my lady bits the way you talk about your junk on this show i welcome you to and i, I think you know if you don't do it too much now you know that can get you well, in you trouble do it too much i don't that's uh, very seldom do. Well, it's one time too many today. You know what? I'm going to take this tiny hand. I'm going to wrap it around your little thin neck. Psh, fuck around <laughs> and find out. You going to bushwhack me? I will bushwhack the fuck out of you. Ugh, I, am, I am like Melinda. I am small, but I am vicious. Fiery. 
<laughs> yeah. Actually, someone on TikTok, one of our TikTok followers, sent me a video today about, um, it was like, how can you be so short and so mean? Uh, yeah. And the person was like, you know, you're only like 5'3", let me just put you on a shelf, and I'll come back and get you later. That's true. Ah, uh, yes. Well, you know, the shorter you are, the closer you are to hell. That's true. <sighs> So, yes. Okay, Dylan, so what do you think about that story? It's something I've never heard before. Found out this bit of history a while back, and I was like, we have got to talk about this during North Carolina Month on Mountain Murders because it's just such a fascinating tale. Again, you've got murder. You've got mayhem. You have you have love. You have intrigue. a mayhem sandwich with some mayhem and ice. You have uh, betrayal, right? Blood feuds. Yeah. And I wonder if any of those people is wearing kilts. Because they brought the Scottish tradition. Is that Scottish? Yes. The, yeah, brought it with them from the Highlands. Maybe, up there, but I just don't country. feel like that was probably practical. Yeah. That's probably not a practical um, outfit for a farmer. For the mountainous winters. But, yeah. Or the, I'm sorry, the frigid winters, mountainous winters. Yeah. Well, like, it's, it's pretty cold on Grandfather Mountain. There's a lot of wind. And from uh, what I understand, there may not be a lot happening under that kilt, right? Yeah, you could have tiny feet and hands. So For all we not, know. That's not what I meant. I, I don't think they wear things under the... Traditionally, I think there's nothing under the kilt. So I'm just saying, with those very um, high winds that can take place on Grandfather Mountain, wearing a kilt might not be a good idea. It's going to dust up your skirt. It's true. You're over there like... Uh, like Marilyn Monroe, yeah. but like trying to farm. Yeah. It's probably not going to work out. You're in the potato field striking poses. If you have a listener story or want to send us an email, do that at mountainmurderspodcast at gmail.com. And, of course, you can join our Patreon, patreon.com slash mountainmurderspodcast. And as we mentioned last uh, episode, Dylan, we have got this true crime calendar coming out. We are going to be featured in this true crime calendar, Dylan, starting October 15th. You can order, well, it's like a pre-order of this calendar that's going to give you 10% off, and that will expire November 30th. Our promo code is also going to give you an additional $5 off. So not only if you pre-order are you going to get the 10% off, but you're getting an extra $5 off with our promo code, Mountain Murders. And both of these promos are combinable. All you have to do is go to podcastcalendars.com to make your purchase, we are very excited about this. Again, if you pre-order between October 15th and November 30th, they're at podcastcalendars.com. You are going to get that 10% off as well as that $5 off using our promo code Mountain Murders. Who doesn't want a true crime calendar? Ah, uh, yes. We will be joining some other independent podcasts there. And uh, not only are the podcasts featured monthly, so you may discover some brand new true crime podcasts. You better believe I'm likely going to listen to every damn podcast on there, bro. Yes. Because I need some new content anyway. You're also going to have famous true crime uh, history, like on the day of certain days. Exactly. So the calendar is going to be chocked full of interesting true crime facts. You're going to have facts about those podcasts. Um, I mean, it's just going to be a really cool calendar, and I cannot wait to have a copy. I got to say, a cool calendar is uh, awesome. And you can take it to work or have it in the garage. It's, you know, it can be a conversation starter or so, something you look forward to, you know, turning the page and seeing what's going on next month. Yes. And uh, we already have a couple of our Discord fam. Uh, 
a couple of people have already uh, signed up for to know about the pre, you know, the launch of the pre-order or whatever you want to call well, that. It's coming this weekend, and they are ready. And you should grab one too. Yeah, podcastcalendars.com. Okay, Dylan. It is time for us to drop our Sometime This Week episode. <laughs> We're about to make it happen, Let's son. Let's wrap it up. Woo! Bye, y'all.